Ladies and gentlemen, the following segment of the podcast is presented exclusively by Hillsdale College. For over 175 years, four purposes have defined Hillsdale's mission, learning, character, faith, and freedom. Thank you for listening and my sincere appreciation to our brothers and sisters at Hillsdale for their great sponsorship. He's here. He's here. Now, broadcasting from the underground command post, deep in the bowels of a hidden bunker, somewhere under the brick and steel of a nondescript building, we've once again made contact with our leader, Mark Levin. Seven seven three eight one three eight one one eight seven seven three eight one three eight one one. I think it's the first week in September we will be celebrating twenty years on the air. Twenty years. Isn't that amazing. Starting as a Sunday host in New York, then a six to seven PM host, then six to eight, six to nine. We have done very, very well in a slot that that never scored before. Because you're up against the Mets, you're up against the Yankees, you're up against the Rangers, you're up against this, that, and the other. But we've had our core audience. And there is no competition on any other stations. Period. So I'm proud of you folks. And I thank you folks. It's a tremendous honor. To push our, our mission, excuse me. I want to get very deeply into now more information on the tyranny that's taking place with the Department of Justice. But before I do, I want to talk about student loan forgiveness. First of all, let me mention something nobody mentions. We're in the Constitution. Does the President of the United States, on his own, without legislation, without the law, have the power to forgive, quote-unquote, indebtedness, loans, that are owed to we, the taxpayers? That money is owed to you. Now, about 35 to 38 percent of the people in this country have graduated from four-year colleges or higher. 
two-thirds have not. That 35 to 38% on average earns far more than the other two-thirds. 70% of the beneficiaries under this are in the top 60% of wage earners. So Joe Biden and the Democrats want to redistribute wealth from blue-collar workers to not just college graduates, half of whom we're talking about have graduate degrees. Graduate degrees. So the Democrat Party, once again, is serving their base. They're serving their constituents. It's not the American people. They're empowering enriching people who support them and vote for them. And they're doing it again. So there's no constitutional basis for that, which makes this unconstitutional. Unconstitutional. And yet here we go. To get votes, to put money in the pockets, of their base. Somebody estimated it's about $900 a month. Now this will have two immediate impacts. Number one, three to $980 billion University of Pennsylvania says over 10 years. That's what it's going to cost the taxpayers. So it's going to affect inflation again. It's another spending bill, if you will. Spending bill for the wealthy. Number two, what's going to happen with college tuition? It's going to go up. It's going to make it less affordable for people who aren't wealthy, for blue-collar workers and their children. Tuition is going to go up. It's already through the roof. And if you notice, we don't have hearings on this, as I said the other day. And the reason is, these are the indoctrination mills. These are the indoctrination mills. For the Democrat Party. Schumer wants $50,000 in relief. AOC and her elk want all of their debt. All of it. Paid for by you. How many of you have loans on your cars, on your homes? Loans on major appliances. Loans on a second home. Loans on your businesses. Don't you wonder why it is that you have to continue to pay down the principal and on the interest of your loan, but this set of individuals is treated uniquely by the federal government? There's a carve-out for them? How many of you have mortgages? Most of you. You think this is fair? Why is this loan for the wealthiest among us? Those who've decided to go to college on your nickel. Apparently, colleges and universities are (laughs) making money like, like drug kingpins with their tuition and so forth. Why is there this carve out? Well, Bernie Sanders wants everybody to go to college. So everybody's indoctrinated. 
this is immoral. And it's unconstitutional. It's all those things and more. And it's going to cost us a fortune. All right. Just want you to keep that in mind. Excuse me. Cholera. Maggie Haberman, a.k.a. Maggot Haberman, Jody Cantor, Adam Goldman, and Ben Protus have a piece last night in the New York Slimes. Trump had more than 300 classified documents at Mar-a-Lago. And now I see our friends at Fox are reporting 700 pages. I thought the government wanted to keep all of this secret. I thought the government was was on the trail, had witnesses. When I was on Hannity last week, he said to me, why? Why won't the government release the affidavit? And I said, because they want to leak it with their salami tactics. They want to cherry pick. They want to create the narrative. That's why. Because they go in court and lie. And outside of court, they leak to their favorite publications, especially the New York Slimes. Now, Maggot Haberman first worked for the New York Post. Then she worked for the New York Daily News. Then she worked for Politico. Now she works for the New York Times, where she got a Pulitzer for effectively lying about Russia collusion. She sees if you want to make money, you want to get awards, you need to work for a corporation that covered up the Holocaust, that in that encouraged Stalin and encouraged Castro and has an anti-Semitism problem. And that would be the New York Slimes. So information has been leaked to the New York Slimes. Information has been leaked to the Washington Compost. Information has been leaked to Newsweek and other reliable sources. CNN, where Maggot Haberman also works. So there's a leak. And now here's the narrative. Here's the narrative. What in the world is Donald Trump doing with 300 classified documents? We don't know what the markings are exactly. We don't know what the documents are, of course. And now now it's 700 pages. Next it'll be how many words. He's obviously up to no good. Obviously. We have Andrew Weissman on MSNBC. MSNBC and CNN hire the slimiest of the slime balls. They used to work as prosecutors, as FBI agents, as CIA, and all the rest. These are the lowest of the low lives, and Weissman is at the top of the list of the low lives. And on MSLSD today, he said the following. Cut one, go. Andrew, let me begin with you just from an FBI point of view and a legal point of view, both of which you have. Uh, what do you make of the, the revelation in the Times that 300 classified documents were found at Mar-a-Lago? So yesterday was a big news day because you had the New York Times reporting. You also had um, John Solomon issuing a letter from the archives in May uh, that um, was also quite damning. And you had um, former President Trump's filing for a special master. So there was a, a lot of news. 
none of it was uh, good for the president. The, the New York Times reporting I found most interesting because of one particular sentence, which is that several sources said that when um, the archives were trying to re- get the documents back, that it was the former president, Donald Trump, who personally reviewed the boxes in deciding what to return. And that means he also decided what not to return. And we know from the archives, not just from The New York Times, that in those 15 boxes were substantial number of classified documents. Okay, wow. Cut three, go. My question is, what about the unclassified documents? There are unclassified documents in there, too. Um, uh, Don't those also belong to you and me and the American people, not to Donald Trump? And and is that not as a crime, maybe not as much of a crime as, as having the compartmented information? But isn't that theft? Didn't he steal these documents from us? Absolutely. The crime uh, is the federal crime is 18 U.S.C. 641 for all of the nerds out there who want to look it up. That um, governs uh, if you steal government property. So that would uh, comply. um, So this sleazeball has Trump guilty of substantial criminal activity, including stealing government property. You have so-called reporters who obviously have studied very carefully what the laws are. Now, why am I playing this? Why am I exposing you to Andrew Weissman and this other guy on MSNBC? Why am I exposing you to this? I'll explain after the break. We'll be right back. Mark Lovin. Folks, it's no secret that Americans are more divided than ever, and it's not just over what policies will improve our great country. No, it's over whether America is great at all, whether America deserves our love. That's why Imprimus, Hillsdale's Digest of Liberty, is so important. Imprimus looks at the issues of the day from a constitutional perspective, reminding citizens always of our great heritage of liberty. For 50 years, Imprimus has featured speeches given at Hillsdale events by the smartest conservative thinkers and writers. These days, Hillsdale publishes people like Victor Davis Hanson, Molly Hemingway, and Chris Rufo. Over 6.2 million American households and businesses receive Imprimus absolutely free, and I urge you to sign up for it today at absolutely no charge. I always look forward to receiving my copy of Imprimus. My friends at Hillsdale and I want you to have a free subscription as well. To get your free subscription, go to levinforhillsdale.com right now, L-E-V-I-N for Hillsdale.com. I want you to think about the Democrats have rewarded illegal immigration. Illegal immigration. Democrats have awarded criminals. The Democrats have rewarded Students now. Students. Democrats have rewarded environmentalists. Tell me, America, who do you think's paying for all this? And what rewards have you gotten? They say they've controlled the price of drugs. 
first of all, that doesn't even kick in until 19, excuse me, until uh, 2026. But that's not a reward. You're going to lose new drugs and technologies. We've talked about that. All right. So you have four so-called reporters at the New York Slimes, and these people are basically propagandists for the state. Now, when the Republicans control the elected branches of government, they're still propagandists for the state. That is, for the Democrat Party and the bureaucracy. That pretty much is the state. And so they just switch hats as fast as they can. Haberman, Cantor, Goldman, and protests. The Democrat administration comes in. They are the recipients of leaks to help the Democrats and hurt the Republicans. Republican administration is in. They are the recipient of leaks to use against a Republican administration. Leaks from Democrats, of course, and the bureaucracy. So Haberman, Cantor, Goldman, and protests took four of them, are basically scribes for the leakers. Say, look at this, 300 documents with classification markings. Had to be from the government. The Trump people want to know exactly what was taken. They don't have a, a clear inventory. So the New York Slimes knows more about the documents than the former president. Now we've got it down the pages, 700 pages. And now we have MSNBC through Weissman announcing that Trump has violated the Espionage Act, that Trump has stolen documents, that Trump has obstructed, and you don't need intent, he says. He's ready to go, baby. He's ready to go because he's an ignoramus. He's a moron. So are these four reporters that provide no context to the American people. Nothing. They're ideologues, and they are utterly unprofessional and unconscionable about how they conduct themselves. I only have a minute left in this segment, but when we come back, I want to read something to you, which is why first I exposed you to the lies that come out of the corrupt media and how the corrupt media use, use hacks, vicious, evil hacks like Weissman. There was a piece... In the Wall Street Journal today, by two constitutional experts who actually litigate at the appellate and Supreme Court levels, who had worked for Ronald Reagan and George H.W. Bush, not just former federal prosecutors, these are serious people who have to litigate these cases at the highest level. And you are not going to want to miss this. I'll be right back. Folks, it's no secret that Americans are more divided than ever, and it's not just over what policies will improve our great country. No, it's over whether America is great at all, whether America deserves our love. That's why Imprimus, Hillsdale's Digest of Liberty, is so important. Imprimus looks at the issues of the day from a constitutional perspective, reminding citizens always of our great heritage of liberty. For 50 years, Imprimus has featured speeches given at Hillsdale events by the smartest conservative thinkers and writers. These days, Hillsdale publishes people like Victor Davis Hanson, Molly Hemingway, and Chris Rufo. Over 6.2 million American households and businesses receive Imprimus absolutely free, and I urge you to sign up for it today 
at absolutely no charge. I always look forward to receiving my copy of Imprimus. My friends at Hillsdale and I want you to have a free subscription as well. To get your free subscription, go to levinforhillsdale.com right now, L-E-V-I-N for Hillsdale.com. They can clone the others, but there's only one Mark Levin, and you can call him at 877-381-3811. All right. David Rivkin and Lee Casey, two top appellate litigators, appellate litigators at the circuit court level and at the Supreme Court level, and they're quite renowned not merely former federal prosecutors posing as experts like Andrew Weissman. And they wrote, was the Federal Bureau of Investigation justified in searching Donald Trump's residence at Mar-a-Lago? The judge who issued the warrant wasn't a judge, actually, was a master. For Mar-a-Lago has signaled that he is likely to release a redacted version of the affidavit supporting it. But the warrant itself suggests the answer is likely no. The FBI had no legally valid cause for the raid. Now, let's stop. I've made the point that the Espionage Act of 1917 cannot apply to the president or a former president that takes documents with him because of Article 2, Section 1, the first sentence. I've made the case that under the Fourth Amendment, this was unconstitutional, not just overly broad, but overly broad because it's unconstitutional. They grabbed all the boxes. I've made the case that they have violated Donald Trump's privilege rights under attorney-client privilege because they grabbed all the boxes. Now, they are making a case that the issuance of the warrant itself was not legally valid, and I want you to listen to this. The warrant authorized the FBI to seize, quote, all physical documents and records constituting evidence, contraband, fruits of crime, or other items illegally, and they stress illegally possessed in violation, and they cite three statutes, that is, the Justice Department does, including the Espionage Act. They say these criminal statutes all address the possession and handling of materials that contain national security information, public records, or material relevant to an investigation or other matters properly before a federal agency or the courts. The materials to be seized included, quote, any government and or presidential records created between January 20, 2017 and January 20, 2021. That is, during Trump's term of office. Virtually all the materials at Mar-a-Lago are likely to fall within that category. Federal law gives Mr. Trump a right of access to them. His possession of them is entirely consistent with that legal right and therefore lawful, regardless of the statutes the FBI cites in its warrant. Wow. How so? Those statutes being cited by the FBI are general in their text and application. But Mr. Trump's documents are covered by a specific statute, the Presidential Records Act of 1978. Now, the four reporters so-called at the New York Slimes haven't read it. Weissman hasn't read it. 
None of these former <laughs> federal prosecutors and legal analysts have read it. They say it's long been the Supreme Court position, as stated in Morton versus Mancari, Man- Man- 1974, that, quote, where there is no clear intention otherwise, a specific statute will not be controlled or nullified by a general one, regardless of the priority of enactment. So the former president's rights under the Presidential Records Act trump any application of the laws the FBI warrant cites. So this statute, 1978, trumps those criminal statutes. Why? Because of what he said, or what they said. That this this is a specific statute having to do with presidential records and how they're to be handled. Not general, criminal, or otherwise type statutes. Now, the Presidential Records Act dramatically changed the rules regarding ownership and treatment of presidential documents. Presidents from George Washington through Jimmy Carter treated their White House papers as their personal property. And neither Congress nor the courts disputed that. In Nixon versus United States, 1992, the U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals for the District of Columbia held that Richard Nixon had a right to compensation for his presidential papers because they were considered personal which the government had retained under the Presidential Recordings and Materials Preservation Act of 1974, which applied to only him. In fact, the court ruled custom and usage evidences the kind of mutually explicit understandings that are encompassed within the constitutional notion of property protected by the Fifth Amendment. That's a fancy way of saying it was Nixon's property. So going from Carter all the way back, it wasn't considered government property. It was considered the property of the president. The Presidential Records Act of 1978 became effective in 1981 at the start of the Reagan presidency. It established a unique statutory scheme balancing the needs of the government, former presidents, and history. The law declares presidential records to be public property and provides that, quote, the archivist of the United States shall assume responsibility for the custody, control, preservation, and access to the presidential records. Okay. (coughs) The law lays out detailed requirements for how the archivist is to administer the records, handle privilege claims, make the records public, and impose restrictions on access. Notably, ready? It does not address the process by which former presidents' records are physically to be turned over to the archivist. Or set any deadline, leaving this matter to be negotiated between the archivist and the former president. That's why you have negotiations then. There's nothing in the statute that says when the former president has to turn the documents over the archive. The law explicitly guarantees a former president, listen to this, continuing access to his papers. Those papers must ultimately be made public, but in the meantime, unlike with all other government documents, which are available 24-7 to currently serving executive branch officials, 
The Presidential Records Act establishes restrictions on access to a former president's records, including a five-year restriction on access applicable to everyone, including the sitting president, absent a showing of need, which can be extended until the records have been properly reviewed and processed. Before leaving office, a president can restrict access to certain materials for up to 12 years. The only exceptions are for the National Archives personnel working on the materials, judicial process, the incumbent president and Congress in cases of established need. They have to prove the need. And the former president himself. The Presidential Records Act Section 2005, subsection 3, specifically commands that, quote, the presidential records of a former president shall be available to such former president or the former president's designated representatives, regardless of any of these restrictions. Nothing in the law suggests, nothing, that the former president's physical custody of his records can be considered unlawful under the statutes, the criminal statutes on which the Mar-a-Lago warrant is based. Yet the statute's text makes clear that Congress considered how certain criminal law provisions would interact with the Presidential Records Act. Provides that the archivist is not to make materials available to the former president's designated representative if that individual has been convicted of a crime relating to the review, retention, removal, or destruction of records of the archives. Nothing is said about the former president himself, but applying these general criminal statutes to him based on his mere possession of records would vitiate the entire carefully balanced statutory scheme. So if the Justice Department's sole complaint is that Mr. Trump had in his possession presidential records he took with him from the White House, he should be in the clear, even if some of those records are classified. The law makes no distinction between them. In making a former president's records available to the former president, this law doesn't distinguish between materials that are and aren't classified. That was a deliberate choice by Congress as the existence of highly classified materials at the White House was a given long before 1978. And the statute specifically contemplates that classified materials will be present, making this a basis on which a president can impose a 12-year moratorium on public access. They're saying the president can take these documents home. There's nothing to prevent him. He has absolute access to the documents. His designees have access to the documents as long as they haven't violated some prior crime under the statute. And those documents include unclassified and classified documents. You follow me, Mr. Producer? The government obviously has an important interest in how classified materials are kept, whether or not they are presidential records. In this case, it appears the FBI was initially satisfied with the installation of an additional lock in the relevant Mar-a-Lago storage room. If that was insufficient and Mr. Trump refused to cooperate, the Bureau could and should have sought a less intrusive judicial remedy than a warrant. A restraining order allowing the materials to be moved to a location with the proper storage facilities 
but also ensuring Mr. Trump's continuing access. Surely that's what the government would have done if any other former president were involved. So let's recap. These four Washington, excuse me, New York Times schlubs taking information leaked to them, by, obviously by the Department of Justice, the prosecutors, and regurgitating it with their own opinions. And this guy Weissman, a former federal prosecutor, a nasty, nasty piece of work. Have no idea what they're talking about. And they don't care. Because we have a rogue Department of Justice, a rogue U.S. attorney, a rogue FBI. The reason no president has been prosecuted under the Espionage Act of 1917 because to do so would be unconstitutional. This statute passed in 1978 and applicable in 1981 forward obviously recognizes that. And the president is given special access to and control over the documents. There's no mention in the statute whatsoever where the documents are, where they should be, whether they're classified or unclassified. Nothing. Unless Donald Trump is a spy, he didn't violate the Espionage Act, even if you argue it applies to him. And he's not required to turn the boxes and boxes of information over unless it's negotiated and he agrees with it. Regardless. And the second level of defense, may I say, is the violations of the Fourth Amendment. The third level, the violations of attorney-client privilege and potentially executive privilege. I think that's the weakest, but that's okay. So let's be clear. By taking documents to his home in Mar-a-Lago, he did not violate any statute because the Presidential Records Act gives him control over and access to the documents, classified or not. It says nothing of where they have to be. Like he has to show up at the National Archives and go to the basement every time he wants to read them. And this obviously was a balancing act because prior to that, presidents took this stuff home, which is exactly why I keep saying, what does Obama have? What does George W. Bush have? What does Gore have? What's Cheney have? What did Biden take? Maybe nothing. Maybe something. But the fact of the matter is, it wouldn't have been illegal, let alone criminal. I think this is why you listen to this program. I'll be right back. Mark Lovin. Folks, it's no secret that Americans are more divided than ever, and it's not just over what policies will improve our great country. No, it's over whether America is great at all, whether America deserves our love. That's why Imprimus, Hillsdale's Digest of Liberty, is so important. Imprimus looks at the issues of the day from a constitutional perspective, reminding citizens always of our great heritage of liberty. For 50 years, Imprimus has featured speeches given at Hillsdale events by the smartest conservative thinkers and writers. 
These days, Hillsdale publishes people like Victor Davis Hanson, Molly Hemingway, and Chris Rufo. Over 6.2 million American households and businesses receive Imprimus absolutely free, and I urge you to sign up for it today at absolutely no charge. I always look forward to receiving my copy of Imprimus. My friends at Hillsdale and I want you to have a free subscription as well. To get your free subscription, go to levinforhillsdale.com right now, L-E-V-I-N for Hillsdale.com. What I just read to you and then further explained to you, you haven't heard from a single legal analyst on television. Not one. You've not heard from a single former federal prosecutor. Not one. You've not heard from a single professor of law. Not one. Not one. That the president is authorized to have access for years to classified and unclassified information. And there's absolutely no requirement that he have it at a certain location. In fact, he can take them home and review them and other presidents have. Period. It's like Trump authorizing 20,000. 20,000 armed National Guardsmen to protect the Capitol. It gives the lie to the entire thing. As does this. As does this. So they'll bring all these bushy guys on and all these Cheney guys on and all the rest of them to tell us what's going on. They don't have the foggiest idea what's going on. They bring on these former federal prosecutors who are not constitutionalists They really don't have the foggiest idea what the hell is going on. And they they bite the hook that's thrown out there by the media and the government like everybody else. Rather than think for themselves. In the third hour, we have a special guest, Jared Kushner. And we're going to go behind the scenes, behind the curtain at the Trump White House. Uh, His book is, I think it's topping the list or near, at Amazon.com. And um, it's going to be fascinating, very, very compelling for those of you who are curious about it. Don't forget our podcast is available. You go to MarkLevinShow.com and it lays out how to get there. Don't forget Satellite Radio on Patriot. Don't forget streaming, MarkLevinShow.com. There's a thousand ways to listen to this show for your convenience. I'll be right back. This segment of the podcast is exclusively sponsored by Pure Talk. Pure Talk offers great coverage and can save your family money on your wireless bill every single month. Go to puretalk.com to find the plan that's right for you. Thank you again for listening, and thank you so much for this sponsorship. Pure Talk. He's here. He's here. Now, broadcasting from the underground command post, deep in the bowels of a hidden bunker, somewhere under the brick and steel of a nondescript building, we've once again made contact with our leader, Mark Levin. Hello, America. Mark Levin here. Our number, 877-381-3811. 
877-381-3811. Now, I've laid this out as clear as I can. And as we keep getting information, this looks worse and worse and worse as far as I'm concerned for the government. So what is it that they can have said in this affidavit? The documents were being destroyed? Well, if documents were being destroyed, ladies and gentlemen, why did it take the Attorney General of the United States two to three weeks to sign off on a search warrant? Why did it take two months? Or I'll even give them the benefit of the doubt. Six weeks to move from a subpoena, the search of Mar-a-Lago, to getting a search warrant. Even with search warrant in hand, why did it take them three days to execute? So if one of the things in the affidavit, and who the hell knows, is destruction of documents, the urgency is seriously in doubt. Seriously in doubt. It seems to me. And why do you need to grab all the boxes of documents? Why do you need such a, a broad search warrant in the first place? If you're focused like a laser on classified documents, why don't you just say classified documents? goes back to my theory when I first heard about this with you on radio that they had one shot they wanted to grab as many documents as they could and this was a pretext to do that I still believe this I still believe this and remember this with the FBI the Department of Justice and the Democrats and the media it's always a moving ball always a moving ball like the first impeachment, Russia, 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 all of a sudden, a phone call with Ukraine in one word. That was it. That triggered impeachment. Shocking, really, in its grotesque application. Shocking. And so in order to work for MSLSD, which is owned by Comcast, you really have to be a lunatic. And Barbara McQuaid is a lunatic, in my view. She's a former United States attorney, Eastern District of Michigan, a liberal Democrat, as I understand. She's on MSNBC today. And look, look how this nitwit pieces things together. Cut six, go. Barbara, one of the things that stuck out from Trump's lawsuit is a message a Trump attorney had for a high-ranking Justice Department official in a call days after the search. Quote, President Trump wants the attorney general to know he has been hearing from people all over the country about the raid. If there was one word to describe their mood, it is angry. The heat is building up. The pressure is building up. And whatever I can do to take the heat down, to bring the pressure down, just let us know. If you were working, Barbara, in the Justice Department and got that message, what would you make of it? All right, just stop. All day yesterday and all day today, these frauds, phonies, and buffoons took that and twisted it. It was a warning, don't you know, to the Department of Justice. That they either back off or there's going to be violence. Is that what it sounded like to you, America? 
Is that not preposterous? Sounded to me like given the attacks on Donald Trump over January 6th, even though he made an affirmative statement to be peaceful, he was making an, a very, very affirmative statement here that he wanted to help defuse the anger that was obviously existent in the country. No, 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 you don't understand. Go ahead. It is a veiled threat that uh, they're suggesting that... It is a veiled threat, and I speak as a former U.S. attorney, and I know what I'm talking about. It's a veiled threat. Now, what kind of an idiot, under these circumstances, would make a veiled threat when you have a court or a master involved? When you already have a search warrant involved? When the whole nation is watching this? There's no veiled threat. It's no threat of any kind, veiled or otherwise. He's making a a suggestion to the department. If you need me to help you somehow to cool things off, I'm here to do it. I assume I have no idea in part to demonstrate that he's not trying to light a fire under this. And by the way, he really has been quite magnanimous, if you ask me, under the circumstances. They go through his wife's closet. They go through his home. They do something that's never been done before. They throw out criminal statutes and say they apply to him. The warrant, in my view, is a general warrant, which is unconstitutional on its face. And, of course, they violate the Presidential Records Act. Go ahead. Take action against me, there could be civil unrest. And, boy, once we start, you know, negotiating... It's not with- what he said, you moron. You idiot. How the hell was she a U.S. attorney? But then again, how is Weissman, general counsel of the FBI? That jerk shouldn't have been anywhere near law enforcement. In fact, he should have been running from law enforcement. But Barbara McQuaid, she likes her role over there on MSLSD, likes the pay, likes the attention. Oh, Barbara, Barbara, you're so smart. Thank you for everything you do, Barbara. Thank you so much. So she knows how to dance when they tell her to dance. She knows how to sing when they tell her to sing. And she sits down when they tell her to sit down. Barbara's a good... Apparatchik. Go ahead. Terrorists, we're in deep trouble. And so that would strike me as a very improper statement. It, it is not, I want to resolve this, I want to help. It is, beware, there are people out there who may engage in violence if you act But we against- already know that because MSLSD, the Constipated News Network, others have been saying so. They've been reporting that. And so Trump sees it, we all see it. God, what an idiot. Go ahead. So I think it's uh, incredibly inappropriate. Ah, Uh, shut up, you idiot. I think you're incredibly inappropriate. What do you think of that, you jerk? And there's so many of them. So many of them. Told you about Maggot Haberman. And her Three Stooges colleagues. The New York Slime. Oh, they got it. Government gave them information. Why do you get a Pulitzer Prize for regurgitating what the government tells you or the Democrat Party tells you? 
It's not like you're really investigating anything. You're sitting on your fat ass, eating a peanut butter and jelly sandwich, cleaning your glasses. God knows what you're doing in front of the computer. And then comes the call. Is this uh, Maggie? Yes, it is. This is Frank. Frank? You remember me? Oh, oh, Frank! The FBI? Yes. Maggie, I want to give you some information. Okay, Frank, wait, wait. I'm getting my pad. Hold on. We took 300 documents out, all classified. Frank, see it? Yes. Just listen. I got to hang up soon. What else? It amounts to 700 pages. Frank, that's a lot. Yes, it is. And we were concerned they wouldn't give us further access to the documents. It was very difficult. Really? That Trump, he's quite the bastard, isn't he, Frank? Yes, Maggie. And by the way, Maggie, yes. You're not recording this, are you? No, no, of course not. Of course she is. She writes books about this stuff. Oh. Yes, Frank, anything else? Yes. You know this Barbara McQuaid over at MSNBC? I know you work for CNN. Yes. Yes, she's on to something. What do you mean? When Donald Trump said he wanted to help? Yes. It was a veiled threat. Let me get that straight. So when Donald Trump wanted to help, it was a veiled threat? Yes. Let me make sure I say that when I'm on the constipated news network, CNN, which she did. Anything else? Yes. What's that? You got to cover my track. You got to say multiple senior anonymous sources. You got it. And so Maggie is up for a Pulitzer Prize. Oh, Maggie! Maggie! When you worked at the little old New York Post, we didn't know you had it in you. But look at you. Look what you've become. Look what you've become. And when you go on the Constipated News Network... You give your opinion. You don't think Donald Trump's going to run. Your reporting is unbelievable. And you thought Donald Trump was going to get indicted of Russia collusion, even though it turns out that your girlfriend, Hillary Clinton, was behind the whole damn thing. I'm not giving this Pulitzer back. No way. You know what the gun guys say. You'll have to. Peel my fingers off this gun. Well, I'm going to have to peel my fingers off my Pulitzer. It's sitting right there. Yes. Right there on the back of the toilet. I am not letting that thing go. No way. Now, Frank. Yes, Maggie. Keep me informed, will you? Yes, of course. That's the New York slime. Oh, and by the way. Maggie needs three other reporters to help her transcribe this. There's four reporters on the beat. Four reporters sitting there gathering information, spood fed to them by the investigators and prosecutors at the Department of Injustice. But Maggie's there, man. She's an intrepid member of the American Pravda operation. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. She's obsessed with Donald Trump. I wonder if her husband knows that.
think he does. She's obsessed with Donald Trump. Of course, we have a president now sitting in the Oval Office who's a crook. That ought to be investigated. There's so much stuff swirling around him. But Maggie knows. That's that's a deal killer. That's a career killer over there at the New York Times. No, no. Trump. And by the way, the New York Slimes has hired a right-wing media beat reporter headed by BuzzFeed journalist who pushed the still dossier misinformation. And by the way, this guy looks like, I can't say pervert, because I don't know that to be the case, Mr. Producer. Looks different in my humble opinion. No, I didn't say he's a pervert. How would I know that? In fact, I would deny that. But the New York Times hires somebody to report on the right wing. What do you think, Mr. Producer? You think they'll be writing about me here and there? That's their intimidation. Right, Barbara McQuaid, if that is your name? That's their intimidation. We're going to be writing about right-wing media. So we're right-wing when we support the Constitution. We're right-wing when we support the Fourth Amendment. We're right-wing when we support due process. You see? We're right-wing when we believe in the rule of law. Must be right-wing. We at the New York Times with the 1619 Project, with our history of Stalinism, Hitlerism, Castroism, anti-Semitism. Yes, we play it right down the middle. We tell the truth. That's why we have so many Pulitzer Prizes. Remember Walter Durante? Yes, yes. He was a mouthpiece for Stalin for 12 years. He was your leading correspondent out of Moscow. Yes, he got a Pulitzer Prize. Pulitzer Prize, you know what it's become? All the radical left-wing reporters vote for all the radical left-wing reporters. I think I deserve a Pulitzer Prize, Mr. Producer, don't you? For exposing all these bastards. I'll be right back. Mark Lovin. Right now, every business is trying to nickel and dime you. How much can they squeeze you to offset their increasing costs? It's a mess. That's why I love Pure Talk, my wireless company, and I want it to be your wireless company. Pure Talk drew the line in the sand and said, stop screwing over the American public. So when you sign up with Pure Talk this month, you're going to get their best ever offer, one month free, one month free. You can lock in talk, text, and data on America's most reliable 5G network, for just 30 bucks a month. Plus get one month free when you make the switch today. Just go to puretalk.com and enter code Levin Podcast for this special offer. That's L-E-V-I-N Podcast. Need another reason? When you choose Pure Talk, you're choosing to support American jobs. You're choosing to support a company whose CEO is a U.S. veteran. And with Pure Talk's no-risk money-back guarantee, you won't regret it. Go to puretalk.com, select a plan, and enter promo code Levin Podcast. That's L-E-V-I-N Podcast, and get one month free. I want to welcome, I think he's there, John Solomon. How are you, sir? I'm well, Mark. Good to talk to you. It's a pleasure. Been a long time, too long. Just the News is a fantastic site here. We use Thank it all you, the sir. time. We've been talking about all the issues. There's so many involved in this rogue operation against uh, former President Trump and his home. And so I want to ask you this. You broke a story the other night that the White House, the Biden White House, facilitated this 
criminal probe. And as I remember, their spokesperson said Biden knew nothing about this and nobody in the White House knew. Yeah. Yeah, they did. That's how they played it on August 8th when the raid occurred. But it turns all the way back to April. Uh, they were had knowledge that the FBI was seeking to open a criminal probe. They couldn't open it without getting the documents given to back from Trump to the archives, unless the archives could send it to the FBI. The president, through his counsel's office, approved the transmission of those documents. President Trump's lawyers then raised executive privilege, as you would expect any former president to do. And President Biden said, you know what, I have no interest in claiming executive privilege over this. If the archives wants to waive it, they may do so. And that facilitated a very quick uh, escalation of the criminal investigation from preliminary to true criminal investigation to grand jury. Uh, I'll tell you how quick it was. May 8th is when uh, the letter goes to President Trump's lawyers from the archives saying the president and White House waived privilege. I was given the documents to the FBI tough luck. Uh, four days later, there's already activity before the grand jury. A couple of weeks after that, President Trump is served with a grand jury subpoena in uh, Mar-a-Lago. Uh, that results in a uh, uh, cooperative uh, visit by the FBI to his compound on June 3rd. And then by uh, August 8th, they've escalated from a grand jury subpoena to a search warrant. And uh, Joe Biden facilitated that acceleration of the investigation. His deputy counsel is directly involved in these discussions. And you, you have a triangle of the National Security Archives, the DOJ, FBI, uh, law enforcement state, and um, the White House uh, approving this. And it just leaves that impression. Think about this. The president, the man who beat Donald Trump in 2020 and expects to run against him in 2024, six, the FBI on his uh, opposition, the opposition leader of the of the United States. Uh, and um, uh, there's no one saying, hey, this is a bad optic. We maybe shouldn't do this. So pretty remarkable story. Pretty irrefutable. Good to see uh, the cor- corporate media catch up to it today and acknowledge it, though they have put their own twisted spin on yeah, it. Yeah, no, the twist they've put on it is John yeah. Solomon and Just the News has demonstrated the opposite of what he's trying to demonstrate. Yeah, that that to demonstrate Biden really I'm didn't want his fingerprints. Fast. Hold on now. That Biden really didn't want to get involved in any of this, yeah. so he turned it over to the archives. Now, yeah. rather than me respond to that, I want you to respond to how ridiculous <laughs> that is. Well, it is ridiculous. And listen, uh, the same reporters that started this, Maggie Haberman last night, a guy named Kyle Cheney, at Politico, I encourage people listening to the show, go take a look at their Twitter feed over the last two years. See how many times they misled you, the American public. Kyle Cheney was one of the first people to say the Hunter Biden laptop was disinformation. We know that's crap. Maggie, Thaber, uh, Maggie Haberman, she was the first person to cry foul when President Trump. All right, I want you to Ukraine. stop. We're going to take you over the break so we can explore this further, because these people are flat out liars. That's what they are. We'll be right back with the great John Sullivan. Right now, every business is trying to nickel and dime you. How much can they squeeze you to offset their increasing costs? It's a mess. That's why I love Pure Talk, my wireless company, and I want it to be your wireless company. Pure Talk drew the line in the sand and said, stop screwing over the American public. So when you sign up with Pure Talk this month, you're going to get their best ever offer, one month free, one month free. You can lock in talk, text, and data on America's most reliable 5G network, for just 30 bucks a month. Plus, get one month free when you make the switch today. Just go to puretalk.com and enter code Levin Podcast for this special offer. That's L E V I N Podcast. Need another reason? 
When you choose Pure Talk, you're choosing to support American jobs. You're choosing to support a company whose CEO is a U.S. veteran. And with Pure Talk's no-risk money-back guarantee, you won't regret it. Go to puretalk.com, select a plan, and enter promo code Levin Podcast. That's L-E-V-I-N Podcast, and get one month free. Mark Levin, America's tyranny hunter. Call in now, 877-381-3811. John Solomon, you've been a reporter a long time. I remember when you worked at the Associated Press. I've known you for decades, haven't I? And, you have, uh, yes, yes. You've been a great reporter in many, in many you, various uh, platforms. Yeah. And now you're doing your own thing. But when you look at this, when you look at when the spokesperson for the White House says Biden didn't know anything, Nobody at the White House knew, and the White House counsel is up to their eyeballs in this stuff with the archives and the waiving of executive privilege by a bureaucrat, and the White House doesn't know about it and certainly never asked them to, you know, John, and on and on and on. You, you must say to yourself, this isn't media. What the hell is this, American Pravda? I mean, yeah, Maggie Haberman is among the worst, if you ask me, she keeps trying to twist things that you do or somebody else says. And they take four reporters today to report on a leak that there were 300 documents, 300 classified documents. Yep. Yeah, and uh, it wouldn't have been hard to, you wouldn't need the source material. sitting in documents. That's why I was able to write these stories the way I did. Um, listen, Maggie Haberman was a flustered when Donald Trump had the idea to ask the Ukrainian president to look at Hunter Biden. She called it in her own story on September 20th, 2019. Check this out. Uh, a blatant mixture of foreign policy with his 2020 election campaign. She was the president of conducting an official act to benefit his politician, political interests. Yet today has no problem with Joe Biden authorizing the release of the documents to the FBI, setting this investigation and moaning, wave, waving the president's privilege. Uh, people have to go back and look at the positions Maggie Haberman took on Twitter or on the front page of The New York Times and compare it to her behavior today. There is an inconsistency uh, to her reporting, to her positions uh, that is blatant. And Kyle Cheney, another guy that's been out there all day, Politico, trying to uh, jab this Yeah, he's run. a sleazeball, this, too. Listen, this is the guy that first told us the Hunter Biden laptop was disinformation. We know now that that wasn't true. He's been a stenographer for a, 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 October 14th, 2020, Kyle Cheney. This is a Russian disinformation operation. I'm very comfortable saying that. He quotes one of Biden's um, uh, operatives. Uh, to do it. We now know that was a false story. And I think what you're, you get into, Mark, is something really important. The president of the United States has looked into the camera many times to us now and told us something that turned out not to be true. He said no one objected to the way we withdrew from Afghanistan. General McKenzie disagrees. Uh, he said, I never had anything to do with my son's business. He actually clearly did. He met with some of his business associates. He said, I didn't. Uh, this is Russian disinformation. It wasn't. And now, you know, inflation was transitory. It was never going to be that. We have a president that's creating a credibility gap and a media that continues to support him without pointing out the credibility gap, and they're ruining their own credibility in the process. I think they've ruined it. I think yeah, there's I uh, no return for them at this point. And uh, yep. a disaster in the New York Times. I mean, whether you look at the history of the Times with Stalin and the Third Reich, and you look at the history covering up the Holocaust and promoting Castro. New York Times has a lot of blood on its hands, doesn't it, John Solomon? 
Listen, it has a lot of difficult journalism. And next month, I believe, there'll be a major article in the Columbia Journalism Review. I, I encourage everybody to read it. I believe it's going to be really informative about the true mistakes, the true bad decisions the New York Times made all throughout the Trump presidency when they repeatedly reported wrong things on the front page. All of these reporters that are haughty out there on television and on Twitter, they're going to get a comeuppance. They're going to see what their own work looks like when you put it in the mirror. The Times has been sweeping this stuff under the rug. I believe the Columbia Journalism Review is going to provide some powerful evidence of just how bad the decision-making is at the New York Times. And uh, you know, at the end of the day, facts are stubborn. I'm going to keep reporting facts. I really don't care about opinions. I'm just going to keep reporting mm-hmm. facts. America needs more of them. Do me a favor. Send me that when you see it. Um, I will. We have post-millennial New York Times right-wing media beat headed by a BuzzFeed journalist who pushed Steele dossier misinformation. <laughs> so now the New York Times, of course, we're always right-wingers. You can't be conservative. You can't be traditionalists. Yeah. You can't be constitutionalists. No, no, you're right wing if you don't agree with the New York Times. So they hire this reprobate who apparently is going to be writing articles about, quote unquote, right wing media. Isn't that what they do already? Yeah. Well, listen, it's they become their own echo chamber. They don't realize how disconnected they are from the everyday middle American. Uh, They're elitist trapped in an ivory tower, unable to see what they look like to the masses of Americans. And they actually still think they're morally superior to the rest of America, but the rest of America knows otherwise. What America wants from news organizations is facts. Don't tell me what to think. Just give me the facts and let me make up my own mind. The New York Times, the Washington Post, Politico, the main news networks, they spend all day trying to force you to think a certain way. Americans are too smart for it. And quite frankly, I think the industry has ruined itself. I'm so glad that I can be free from that and I can just write stories that are, are, are factually true and transparent. You get to see my documents. You get to see my video, uh, my audio, and I'll let the American people, I trust the American people to make up their own minds. I don't feel like I have to lead them by the nose to a, a conclusion. Just the news. It's a great site. It's a site we bookmark and use here. John oh, Solomon, thank thanks you. for all your work, brother. It's an honor to be with you tonight. Thanks, Mark. All right. God bless. Governor DeSantis, America's governor. You know, people, it's amazing. I can't mention who and all the rest of it, but could DeSantis lose? Might he lose? Apparently, there's this Mayor Suarez in uh, Miami. Thinks he's presidential material. And it's not an accident that he's showing up everywhere. He's showing up everywhere to deny that he's ready to make any decisions about showing up everywhere. And so they want to make this guy into the next great candidate because he's a young guy. Uh, Miami's been run very well. So I watched this interview. He gives no credit to the governor. None. Zero. No credit to Rubio. None. Zero. Now, we all know a governor is crucial in running a state, in a city, in a city. So there's economic booms all over the state of Florida, including in its cities, including Miami. This guy's a moderate. He's kind of, (coughs) excuse me, cholera. This guy's a moderate. And he's, he's kind of a bushy. But he's out there because nobody knows anything about him. And he says, you know, he wants to have a positive message, not a negative message. So that's a shot at DeSantis. It's a shot at Trump. 
He's the future, the next generation. I'm so sick of hearing this crap. The future, the next generation. Hey, hey, hey. We want a principled president who can beat these guys back. And if you're a happy face, busy putting out Hallmark cards, not interested. We already have those all over Washington. I call them Republicans because that's what they are. Governor DeSantis, America's governor on Fox and Friends today. He'll talk about the FBI. Cut seven, go. So the FBI has a history now of weaponizing its power to go after people that it doesn't like. And not only have they done that in a variety of contexts, they went after Donald Trump as a candidate specifically with Russia collusion, even when he became president. And they were basically trying to drive him out of office based on a conspiracy theory. You've seen FBI agents falsify FISA applications to get surveillance on innocent Americans. We're seeing what's happening with this Michigan kidnapping hoax, uh, which was a total disaster for the Bureau. You look at what's happened with having FBI agents surveil parents going to school board meetings. Who would have ever thought that? So I think when when Republicans look at that and they're upset about it, it's against the backdrop of all that conduct where basically these agencies have become the enforcement arm of one particular faction of our country against everybody else. And so that's why I think people are concerned about it. I haven't read the motion in terms of what was going on, uh, but clearly federal agencies in the past five, ten years have been weaponized uh, against people the government doesn't like that's just a fact and it is just a fact and if you are a politician who thinks you're going to be the republican nominee for president who's just going to be another quasi pretty face or even not that pretty but have a nice haircut it's going to go around with uh, platitudes it's not going to work parents have had enough parents have had enough taxpayers have had enough People who live on the border and around these cities with illegal immigrants, they've had enough. Hardworking Americans of every stripe, they've had enough. We've had enough with the destructive language about families, about parents, that there isn't a binary, there aren't binary sexes. Well, of course there are. Of course there are. If you want to lop something off or add something on, that's up to you. If you want to do something weird with your genitalia to somebody else with their genitalia, that's your problem. That's up to you. Don't try and mainstream it and don't brainwash our children over it. I don't know what the hell my father and mother would say today if they were alive. They'd be shocked. They'd be stunned. Like we are. We need men and women who are going to stand up to this. We need men and women who are going to fight. You want to be president, then you're going to have to demonstrate that you have what it's take to save this country because this country has to be saved now. Like I said in American Marxism, we're not just looking into the abyss, we're in the abyss. We're in a post constitutional period in many respects. We've lost our sovereignty. Five million people come into this country? Five million in 18 months? With a small percentage being removed? Five million!
And women's sports are no longer women's sports. Women are no longer women unless, of course, they're left-wing Democrats and they're a Supreme Court justice, the very first. Oh, my goodness. Now she's a woman. She can't define women. She needs a biologist, but she's a woman. You got to put up with this insanity. We have no time for rhinos. We have no time. Time is up. For the Romneys and the Cheneys and the Bushes and the McConnells. Time is up. We need statesmen. We need leaders. And of course, our domestic enemies are going to try to destroy them, try to destroy their reputations. If it's not Trump, it'll be DeSantis. If it's not DeSantis, it'll be Tom Cotton. If it's not Tom Cotton, it'll be Ted Cruz and on and on down the list. These Marxists exist to smear people, to destroy their reputations, to character assassinate them. Why do you think they're doing this to Donald Trump? The dossier, Russia collusion, two phony impeachments, a phony criminal investigation, a Democrat DA in the South, a Democrat DA in the North, a Democrat Attorney General in New York, a Nancy Pelosi committee. A Joe Biden attorney general, a Joe Biden U.S. attorney. What the hell do you think's going on? And now, 87,000 more IRS agents. Can you imagine that? And this slob, this buffoon, this moron Joe Manchin makes it all possible. Don't worry, they told me they're not going to... Shut up, you moron. We've had enough of you. Enough of you. Drama queen, we've had enough of you. Double. Double the manpower at the IRS. Undermine the manpower on the border. Undermine local police. Undermine the U.S. military. But the IRS, the internal enforcement division of the Democrat Party, man, double up, muscle up, arm up, they're ready to go, baby. I'll be right back. Mark Lovin. Right now, every business is trying to nickel and dime you. How much can they squeeze you to offset their increasing costs? It's a mess. That's why I love Pure Talk, my wireless company, and I want it to be your wireless company. Pure Talk drew the line in the sand and said, stop screwing over the American public. So when you sign up with Pure Talk this month, you're going to get their best ever offer, one month free, one month free. You can lock in talk, text, and data on America's most reliable 5G network for just 30 bucks a month. Plus, get one month free when you make the switch today. Just go to puretalk.com and enter code Levin Podcast for this special offer. That's L E V I N Podcast. Need another reason? When you choose Pure Talk, you're choosing to support American jobs. You're choosing to support a company whose CEO is a U.S. veteran. And with Pure Talk's no-risk money-back guarantee, you won't regret it. Go to puretalk.com, select a plan, and enter promo code Levin Podcast. That's L-E-V-I-N Podcast, and get one month free. I want to thank you for watching Life, Liberty, and Levin last night on Fox. 
We crushed CNN and MSNBC combined. We were number one on Fox for the entire weekend. I want to thank you. And by the way, I have some lovely colleagues over there. The powerhouse, Maria Bartiromo, she's the powerhouse. What a great show. My buddy Dan Bongino on Saturdays. Fantastic. Kill Mead. Lawrence. Who else? I don't know Helton and I don't know Trey. But uh, I know a lot of people over there. And the weekend folks are great. I always have to try and keep up with Maria. She's tough. She's tough. She's good. She is good. On Gino. Same thing. Kill me. So many. And the uh, Fox and Friends during the week and Fox and Friend weekend. They're just great. Just terrific. Reminder, Jared Kushner will be on the program literally after the top of the hour in our third hour. Exclusive interview. We have a powerful third hour coming up, ladies and gentlemen. Don't miss it. All you Levinites will meet in just a few minutes. I'll be right back. Ladies and gentlemen, I want to ask you a question. Did you know withdrawing your cash from the bank can be very risky? That's right. Banks are now required to spy on us for the government. And they report any behavior they think is suspicious. It's true. And I was shocked when I read the secret war on cash from Swiss America. The new war against cash is really a war against the Constitution, against all freedom-loving Americans. So you need to read the war on cash. Get your free copy by calling 800-630-1492, 800-630-1492, or visit SwissAmerica.com. Now, this war on cash is growing daily and also includes all forms of digital money. Please get and read The Secret War on Cash free to my listeners by calling now, 800-630-1492, 800-630-1492, or visit SwissAmerica.com. He's here. He's here. Now, broadcasting from the underground command post, deep in the bowels of a hidden bunker, somewhere under the brick and steel of a nondescript building, we've once again made contact with our leader, Mark Levin. Hello, America. Mark Levin here. Our number, 877-381-3811, By the way, they know how to run an election in Florida. They count the votes as they come in, whether they were early voting or ballot, you know, absentee ballots and so forth. So they already have like 60 percent of the vote counted. Excuse me. And Chris just slaughtered this uh, agriculture secretary in Florida. He's the projected winner against DeSantis. So that's a big deal. But speaking of big deals, we have our friend Jared Kushner with us. How are you, Jared? Doing great, Mark, and thank you again for, for having me tonight. It's a great pleasure. The book is Breaking History, a White House memoir. Now, what's particularly compelling about this book is you write about your firsthand experiences at the White House, working with the president, your father-in-law, Ivanka, your wife, and so many other people. And I don't really view this as a kiss-and-tell book, and there's a lot of kiss-and-tell books in which the goal is to stab Donald Trump in the back. 
So tell the audience, if you would, Jared Kushner, the book is Breaking History, a White House memoir. How was it like working with Donald Trump? So working with him was a very unique experience. I, I find that there are so many people who have tried to describe Trump in different ways, but the truth is often hiding in plain sight. You know, people know him. He's been the same person when he was on television. He's the same person when he was doing business. He's the same person when he was in politics. And he doesn't change, but he was such a a challenge to the political system as an outsider that I write about his experience learning how to do a political campaign and how he did you know, his first campaign ever running for president and winning, which is uh, pretty historic in nature. I, I write a, a lot about how he figured out different things. He did it his own way. Uh, he did it unconventionally, but ultimately was very successful. And then working with him in the White House, he was a very demanding boss. He worked 24-7. Uh, since I know him, I'm married to Ivanka now almost 13 years. Uh, I've never seen him take a vacation. And so uh, he would call me at 1 o'clock in the morning. He would call me at 5 o'clock in the morning. Uh, he never stopped. And the myriad of issues that we worked on, from securing the border and immigration to uh, trying to figure out how to end the, end the endless wars, the work in the Middle East to support uh, the relationship with Israel and to take on China, to figure out how to get along with Russia. These were all issues that were that were combated while, while also fighting on all the domestic fronts as well and dealing with the investigations and the phony witch hunts and the crazy impeachments. So uh, he worked nonstop. And in this book, I really try to take people inside what it was like, the intensity of it, how all these issues were going at at one time, and how Trump thinks and how he was able to accomplish so much while being under so much siege from the media and from the Democrats and from from all different angles. And you really have to be laser focused, don't you? Because there's a lot of static, there's a lot of incoming, there's a lot of media distraction, people in your own party trying to uh, undermine you and so forth. I mean, in the end, you really have to be focused, don't you? So, so I would not have ever thought, you know, being a, a businessman and being somebody who'd watched politics, just how crazy and intense it is to be inside of politics. And that was really what I tried to, to show the reader. I, I tell many, many stories about how you have people with competing interests trying to undermine the president's agenda. You know, one thing I talk about is is building the wall. You know, there were two years where um, they didn't give President Trump enough funding for the wall and different people, whether it was Steve Bannon, whether it was John Kelly, they, they didn't get the job done for him. And so, you know, I just gotten a big uh, a prison reform done where we were trying to figure out how to get skills training in prisons so that people, when they get out, you know, go and get jobs instead of committing crimes in the future to keep communities safer. And President Trump said, OK, you're working on the wall now. Congratulations. And so. I, I really write about what it was like to have to find the money in different ways and and uh, and how President Trump, he shut down the government because he said, I'm going to I am not going to let my voters down. I promised I was going to do this. What's happening at the southern border is a total disgrace. But he was fought by everybody and Congress tried to stop him. People's own administration tried to stop him. But through a sheer force of will, he found the money. And by the end of his administration, he built 470 miles of wall. Uh, because of the success of the wall, the wall, there were changes in the migratory patterns. He was building more wall, and the immigration numbers were the lowest they'd been in history uh, when President Trump left. And obviously, that's been undone, and the disaster that's happening at the southern border now, uh, based on the current administration revoking Trump's policies, is an absolute humanitarian disaster. So I try to write a lot about what it's like to get things done in Washington and to give people who never served in Washington uh, a firsthand account, especially in, in just the chaos and the and, and just the, the, the warfare that was happening in Washington, trying to stop President Trump from fulfilling his promises to the American people. Now, you were dragged into a lot of these 
these events too, right? I mean, uh, on the Hill, different uh, investigations and so forth. I guess you were shocked by that, like, my God, all I'm doing is trying to help here, right? Well, it was partially that, but I got over that pretty quickly because I, I realized that it's a big game and that, you know, when you're in, in politics, it's almost like sand in an hourglass and there, there, there's a shot clock. So your job is to get things done and their job is to try to distract you or stop you so that you're not able to get those things or done. Or destroy but you. What, what shocked me, well, that was what shocked me, right? Because, you know, it's not like the consequence was, okay, we stop him, that's okay. What they were trying to do was put us in jail. And, and you know, I had several times, I write about this in my book, where I had mornings, I'd have several uh, film cameras outside my house, and I'd call my lawyer and say, truth is, is yeah, and, and I basically yeah. said to myself, I didn't know what they were investigating us for. You know, mm -hmm. they said that we colluded with Russia, they promised people for two years that that was the case, but we never, we, we never did anything like that. So we had to spend two years proving our innocence and fighting that off while trying to get things done. And um, you would work with the Hill. You would work with Republicans and Democrats on the Hill. Let me ask you this. Who was the most difficult to work with? Which individual? Can you tell me? So, oh, I mean, you have difficult individuals all over the place. You know, I, I personally found, um, unfortunately, M Mitch McConnell was both difficult and simple, right? He just wanted to hold his power and and if he felt like the politics were good, he'd let it go. But he he was not looking to be courageous to get things done. Uh, there were some people on on the right who I was totally surprised by how amazing they were. Like Mike Lee became an unbelievable ally, and then that guy is brilliant. He works his butt off. Uh, he would he would go through the text on every bill, uh, and really was just relentless to get the things done he wanted to get done. Uh, but I was very disappointed with some of the Democrat leaders. There were. You know, issues like criminal justice reform that ended up passing with 87 votes uh, in the Senate and then the trade deal, USMCA, which vote, which passed with 89 votes. But the reluctance to engage with from the Democrat leadership was very, uh, very, very disappointing. But I, but I will say also there's a lot of very good members as well. Like, believe it or not, Dick Durbin, I found to be very constructive and Hakeem Jeffries. Uh, they were willing to work to try to find uh, constructive solutions to find policies that we could push forward. And uh, the trick was just to keep the, the conversations quiet, you know, out of the, out of the, out of the reach of the media. And I write a lot about these, you know, dinners we'd have at our house with people. We get Democrats and Republicans together and say, okay, we're both on the same side here. We're both Americans. Let's just agree on what a good solution is. And then let's figure out where we're apart and how do we get there? And I think that's how the system's supposed to work. But we were able to get a lot of that done. And President Trump, to his credit, he fought very hard for what he believed in. But he was one to cut deals and get done the things that he felt benefited the American people at large. Did you ever work with Nancy Pelosi? Uh, I think that she was just trying to, to obstruct and fight Trump at, at every step of the way. I mean, I think her whole agenda was to become speaker you know, for the first two years. So there was no... Um, there was no hints that we saw uh, in order to, to, to get things done. Uh, but I will say, though, the one place where we were able to work with her was on the rescue package when the, the economy was, was looking very uh, shaky during COVID. And, and we got an amazing rescue package done that I do think saved the American economy and, and the global economy in that matter. And that was just a real work of, of speed that President Trump did that, was, that really made a big, big difference. 
The book is Breaking History, a White House memoir, Jared Kushner. Did you ever work with Liz Cheney? So she was always in there fighting with President Trump. She wanted to keep our troops overseas forever, and so she would fight with that. But, you know, she was always very kind to me, actually, through the four years, because she said, look, I know what it's like having you know, a high-profile father uh, or relative who's who's serving in government. And she'd go always go out of her way to say gracious things. But then, obviously, when she uh, when she went on this committee and, and went on this jihad, uh, you know, she couldn't have been more nasty when she was doing the questioning. And, you know, I don't know. I, I've just seen this time and time again with, you know, different Republicans where the media starts, you know, treating them nicely. And they basically, you know, say what they have to say to go against Trump. And then the more they go against Trump and say these things, they get elevated. But it's, you know, it's kind of like in some ways she's like the new Michael Avenatti. And, you know, the media will, will use her to do what they need. And then when they're done with her, they'll disregard her. Mm-hmm. But uh, it's, it's very unfortunate, you know, what she's done. And, and I think it's, it's pretty self-serving on her part to get attention. Folks, this is a great book if you want to know what actually took place in and around the Oval Office with President Trump and so forth. It's not a book trying to trash the former president, you know, even the score with the former president or whatever. Jerry Kushner was not a disgruntled former employee. He was there right to the end. Breaking History, a White House memoir. You can get it on Amazon.com right now. You can get it at any major bookstore right now. It came out today. It's right off the presses. I encourage you to grab a copy. And we'll be right back with Jerry Kushner. Mark Lovin. We're on with uh, Jared Kushner. Fantastic book, Breaking History, a White House memoir. I encourage people in this audience to grab a copy. If you go to Amazon.com now, you can get it tomorrow. Any major bookstore, of course. And it is discounted because it's so high up on the list on Amazon.com. What shocked you the most, other than all the investigations and all the media attacks, what shocked you the most? The bureaucracy, the backstabbing, anything positive? Well, I, I think that the book goes through so many things because the whole experience was kind of shocking. But I, I think what shocked me the most was how wrong a lot of the conventional thinkers were and how bringing an outsider's approach to Washington enabled Trump to get so many things done. And I think that, you know, the, the best example of that is really in the Middle East with the Abraham Accords, how the conventional thinking was really summed up by John Kerry before uh, we took office. He said, there will never be peace between Israel and the Arab countries until there is peace between Israel and the Palestinians. And that was how everything was accepted. And, and you know, Trump had me, you know, speaking to different people, forming different points of view. And then as I came up, you know, with a perspective, I said, I think we can do this the other way. And Trump said, Let, let's go do that. And so uh, we really worked very hard to, to do that. And that led to a breakthrough that nobody thought was possible with the Abraham Accords peace deal, where you had peace between Israel and the Arab countries, which really started to end the Arab-Israeli conflict, which which was a big breakthrough. By the end of Trump's administration, we had six peace deals in the last six months, and there was amazing momentum, and he totally turned around the Middle East. So what, what I came away from Washington believing was that you have a lot of these career political people who have been there for way too long, whose job is to, to stay in Washington, and they judge each other, they go to the media, and they have the same stale thinking. And I I do think that 
Our country has so much potential. I've seen it. I saw the way Trump was able to get our economy rolling. I saw the way he was able to deal with foreign countries and, and make sure we had no problems with China. We were making great trade deals with China. We had no problems with Russia. Forget about the war that you have now. That never would have happened if Trump uh, was in office. Trump dealt with Putin very uh, very respectfully and very strongly. I mean, there's one story you know, I tell in the book about how Trump was negotiating a deal with Putin and with uh, King Salman from Saudi Arabia to get an OPEC plus oil cut done to save the American oil and gas industry, uh, which has about 11 million jobs during the, the COVID drop. And he's on the phone with Putin and he says to, to Putin, you know, he's making some small talk beforehand, as he does, because he had a good relationship. He says, aren't you nervous about China, you know, with your southern border? All your wealth is in, is in the south. You know, are you nervous they're going to try to expand in and take some of your land there? And Putin says to, to Trump without missing a beat, if I'm the one who should be worried about my southern border, why are you the one building the wall? And yeah. so, you know, they had good back and forth, but they respected each other and they were able to kind of get things done. And so I think my surprise was just how there was so much that could be accomplished with good leadership. And again, Trump was so uh, forced to deal with all the investigations and all the inquisitions, but he still managed to get the economy rocking and, and create a very peaceful world. And in many ways, he's a force of nature, isn't he? His charisma, his personality, his uh, can-do-it attitude. Now, let's look at Iran very uh, he, quickly here. It looks like uh, Biden's about to sell out to Iran in the worst possible way. He's not going to send it to the Congress to approve. Uh, and so, um, you know, the former president basically put his foot on their throat and was choking their economy, had sanctions on them, uh, was basically supporting in his own way the, uh, the the voices of freedom over there, and now we have the opposite, don't we? Look, the, the, the deal that was done with Iran in 2014 was probably one of the worst deals that was ever cut in the history of the world. And I used to have a lot of countries say to me, well, if we can't trust the deal that America makes, then what good is our relationship? And I would say, look, we've had uh, a lot of different deals with different countries, but a treaty between countries, and this wasn't even a treaty, this was a deal, is only good for as long as, as it's in the interests of both, 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 both sovereign nations. And this, this deal basically you know, gave them all this money that they didn't use to invest in their economy. They used to increase their military budget. Uh, the day they signed the deal, they were saying death to America. And they really were causing a ton of instability throughout the Middle East. So President Trump took their their oil, they were doing about 2.6 million barrels a day down to about 100,000 barrels a day and really uh, was causing their, their economy serious, serious pain. And so it took about three years to turn the tide with them. But whereas President Trump inherited a very weak hand, he ended up with a very strong hand. Now, he used to say that Iran has never won a war, but they've never lost a negotiation. And he knows that they were very talented negotiators. He played a lot of different games with them, but he had a very strong hand to play. The current administration, when they came in, instead of building off of the six peace deals that President Trump had made, and keep in mind, the Middle East was an absolute mess for 20 years. It wasn't just the Democrats that screwed it up. It was also the Republicans before them. It was mm -hmm. the whole foreign policy establishment that screwed up the Middle East. But instead of taking the Trump approach, because Trump did it, they went back to the old failed approach, and they've basically been on their knees begging Iran to make a deal, which makes no sense. And Iran has shown no uh, interest, at least they've shown no sense to, to me or to a lot of other people who I trust that it's going to change their behavior and they're going to start, you know, they're going to stop saying death to Israel, death to America. 
and, and going to become, you know, kind of a, a country that we can coexist with. So I, I think that what they should be doing is, is, is definitely not making this deal. But if they were going to make a deal, I'm not against making a deal. You have to make a deal that will stop their funding of, of terrorist groups throughout causing instability and, and not allow them to become a nuclear power. Because once they have that, they are going to absolutely go crazy destabilizing a lot of the countries around them. Well, apparently they have the technology now. Just a matter of fusing it with the uh, with the deli- the uh, delivery system, according to many many reports. And uh, they've been playing rope a dope with the Biden administration, and now, I mean, they're even demanding things like if the United States pulls out again, that they have to be paid uh, reparations. And so, I mean, it's so preposterous at this point. Jerry Kushner, can you hold over the uh, bottom of the hour, sir? Yes, of course. The book is Breaking History, a White House memoir, Jared Kushner. I strongly encourage you to get it. I got an early copy and I read it. Fantastic book. You can get it on Amazon.com, any major bookstore. And I know you're going to really enjoy it. We'll be right back. In today's digital age, where cyber threats loom larger than ever, safeguarding your personal information is paramount. So why is Congress considering a law that could put your credit card data at greater risk of being hacked and exposed to foreign networks? This Durbin-Marshall credit card bill could jeopardize your financial data, make it more susceptible to cyber intrusions. It's a controversial bill that proposes a shift in billions of dollars worth of consumer transactions to payment networks that lack the robust security measures consumers rely on. Who could possibly want that? Well, the answer, woke corporate megastores seeking to inflate their multi-billion dollar profit margins. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill will undermine our safe and convenient payment systems and endanger your data security. It's time to take a stand. Visit electronicpaymentscoalition.org. Make your voice heard. Tell your senators to oppose the radical Durbin Marshall credit card bill paid for by the Electronic Payments Coalition. So lately, I've been on a mission to change the way people view their finances and to encourage people to overcome obstacles and adversity. It's just more and more important to me every day. So I've teamed up with the folks at Life Surge. Life Surge is a one-day faith-based event where you'll walk in hungry for success and you'll leave ready to build your resources to leave an impact on others. We're talking faith-fueled finance, growing resources, crushing obstacles, and then, yeah, using it all for something way bigger than yourself. I'll be joining Life Surge in Cincinnati on Saturday, August 3rd. Joining me in Cincinnati is Nick Vujicic, the man with no arms or legs that speaks about his trials and triumphs. Soul surfer and author Bethany Hamilton, Duck Dynasty's Willie Robertson, and author and pastor Craig Groeschel, star of CNBC's The Prophet, Marcus Lemonis, and Bethel Music. That's Life Surge, Cincinnati, on Saturday, August 3rd. Tickets are on sale exclusively at lifesurge.com. I hope to see you there. When the going gets tough, a tough get. Mike Levin. Call in now at 877-381-3811. The book, which is really a journey through the uh, the term of uh, President Trump, with uh, probably, I'd say, Jared, you were his closest aide, Breaking History, a White House memoir. General Kelly, you know, uh, I think of the chiefs of staff who were there. I thought General Kelly, you know, on the outside, he seemed like a great guy, a four-star general and so forth. But there were issues there, right? 
Yeah, definitely. So I actually was a proponent for General Kelly coming in. He'd impressed me with the results that uh, that had been achieved at uh, Department of Homeland Security, where the border uh, became pretty secure. Uh, he had a great reputation in the military. But what we saw very quickly when he was in the White House, and I, I tell many stories about this, is that his ability to transfer from a military organization to a civilian organization uh, was very lacking. He was also a very conventional thinker, uh, you know, having been in Washington so long and part of um, part part of that 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 world. Whereas Trump wanted to try and change the world and try to do disruptive things, he wanted to manage the world. And at some point, it felt like you know you had two types of people there. You had people who thought that Trump was saving the world, and then people who thought they were saving the world from Trump. And the latter group just had really had no business being there. But you know, I tell different stories about how. You know, when it came time to move the embassy to Jerusalem, Trump was trying to, you know, get a process going. And I think Kelly didn't like the fact that Trump wanted to do it. And Ambassador Friedman, myself, we were pushing very hard uh, for the president to do it. And so he created a process designed to allow all the voices of dissent to try to get in there and talk President Trump out of it. But President Trump ran a process like he normally does. And there's a great scene I write about from the Situation Room where, you know, General Kelly, you know, arranges for Rex Tillerson, who was the Secretary of State at the time, to, you know, explain to the president why this was not a warranted move. And he opened up his binder and he says, you know, well, in, uh, you know, in 1996, when, you know, Jerusalem was was captured in the war, and David Freeman said, whoa, 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 just, just so that we're very clear, it was 1967, <laughs> you know, I know a lot more about this history than you do. And, and Tillerson just closes his book and, and goes back. And then, you know, Mattis says to him, he says, well, let me ask you, why do they, why do we have to, why does Jerusalem have to be the capital? Every time I go to visit the military, I go to Tel Aviv. And David turns to him and says, well, let me ask you, where's the Pentagon? He says, in Virginia. He says, exactly. So by that definition, Virginia should be the capital, you know, mm-hmm. not D.C. And so uh, it was just one of these things where he kept trying to create these processes to hold back the progress that President Trump wanted to do. But again, it took President Trump a couple of years to get to know Washington. He used to joke that the first night he ever slept in D.C. was the first night he ever slept in the White House. He was an outsider. And uh, and again, what I really tried to do in this book was that you had four years of you know the media nonstop talking about Trump. What was he thinking? What was he doing? Uh, what did he do? What did he say? What did he not say? And it was just absolute wall to wall. And what I found being right next to him the whole time was that they just they were always missing the story. And you know, some ways there was like a big smoke screen. Think about it like the ocean where there were waves chopping all the time. But underneath the water, it was actually pretty smooth, pretty quiet. And there were a lot of incredible policies happening, which is how President Trump was able to get the economy roaring. Wages were rising. Inflation was low. Gas prices were low. Uh, you know, the world was peaceful. And, you know, the trade deals were happening. Companies were moving jobs back to America. And everything was working just like Trump had, just like President Trump had promised. So I really wanted to kind of describe what it was like being there in a very hostile environment. Uh, and again, General Kelly was one of the characters in, in that um, – who I learned certain things from. Again, you know, there was different management things he did that I, I learned from, but there were a lot of things he did that I think didn't fit with the personality and the ambition of what President Trump was trying to achieve. All this is in the book, ladies and gentlemen, Breaking History and a lot more. Uh, Jared Kushner's book. How about Mick Mulvaney? How was he to work with? So Mick was fine. You know, I think that, um, you know, Reince came in in the beginning. He was the first chief of staff, and, and he was in an impossible situation because 
you had just so many different people who were coming in and, and there was a lot of different turf wars. Then Kelly came in and it went more from a liquid to a solid. I think Mulvaney took a more laid back approach and allowed a lot of things to start functioning in the White House. And I write about that a lot as well. Uh, we started getting good groove, getting a lot of things done. Where he kind of hit uh, a wall was during the impeachment. Uh, that was really an existential moment, right? President Trump was trying to investigate corruption in Ukraine and the Democrats in, in their haste to get him. I mean, you spoke about Pelosi earlier. Um, I'd been hearing from my friends who were Democrats that she was not going to do impeachment. And then what happened was, is the people on the left were starting to challenge the moderates and saying that we're going to primary you if you don't do impeachment. So she should, you know, I have no choice. If not, I'm going to lose my job. So she started it. But I always say that Trump makes his enemies so crazy that they make mistakes in trying to get him. And so they picked the wrong thing to try to impeach him on. And so they chose this, this crazy whistleblower call. Mulvaney actually helped make the right call to say, no, 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 this is a political issue more than a legal issue. Let's release the tape. And that's what Trump wanted to do. And I write you know, through the deliberations of that. And that turned out to show that it actually was a perfect phone call. And I actually, at that point, you know, Mark Meadows, Jim Jordan, Lee Zeldin, Matt Gates, they all showed up at the White House and said, you guys have a great case here, but you're blowing it. And they came in and they said, look, the, the facts of this case are very simple, right? Number one, you released the transcript showing that you had nothing to hide. Uh, number two, uh, you released the aid. So, you know, it, there, number three, there was never an investigation. And number four, President Zelensky, when asked at the U.N., said there was no pressure. So those are your four facts. And if you just stick to those facts, you'll pummel these guys. And so we really had to get organized to do that. But there was a lot of tension between White House counsel and Mulvaney. And that just showed a lot of cracks in the machine. And then that was when Trump decided to bring in Meadows, who I think was actually a, a, an excellent uh, White House chief of staff. He, he understood the politics. He, he understood how to bring in the right people. And, uh, and that's when I think we, we were really running at the, at the best level, you know, not maybe for any other president, but the best way to serve Trump and, and what he wanted to do and how he wanted to do it. Uh, then obviously, you know, COVID happened and that, um, that, 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 that had to reset everything. But I think because he had a team that was ready to go, that's why he was able to pull off so many miracles during COVID in order to, to get the country what they needed to prevent a lot of deaths. And Meadows seemed to have, you know, he really had his, his ego in check. A lot of these other guys, you know, they just felt they were bigger than the president, I feel. Let me ask you another question. Let's talk about this virus for a moment. President has to deal with a lot of faces he never saw before, you know, out of the CDC and and Fauci and all the rest of them. And uh, what do you think about how the way that worked, things that you had to do with the ventilators and so forth? As a matter of fact, President joked with me the other day. He said, Mark, you need to buy a ventilator? We've got plenty of ventilators. Anyway, <laughs> you have any thoughts on that? Yeah. So actually that, that, that he's referring to, uh, we, we were at a point where, uh, you know, governor Cuomo was requesting 40,000 ventilators. Everyone thought that we were going to end up like Italy where people would be dying on gurneys and hospitals and doctors would be, have to make, you know, have to be making life or death decisions on who lived and who died. And we only had, I think it was about 14,000 ventilators in the stockpile. And the data that we were showing was that we were going to need anywhere from, you know, 40,000 to 130,000, you know, in a week or two. So we're looking at data showing that, you know, a lot of Americans are going to die because, you know, we just didn't have the, the preparedness for it. And that was probably the scariest moment that I had in my entire service and probably in my entire life, knowing that, 
you know, just the tsunami coming at us was so big. And so, you know, we ran into action. We started, you know, making sure that governors gave us data uh, before they were able to get any any ventilators. And, you know, we were getting a lot of heat from the media, everyone saying, you know, give me ventilators, give me ventilators, but we couldn't satisfy all the demands. So, President Trump was yelling at me saying, get the ventilators out. And I said, look, I'll take responsibility for this. These guys don't need the amount of ventilators they're, 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 they're requesting. And once we send it out, we're never getting it back because everyone's hoarding all these goods all over the country. And so we ended up uh, you know, distributing them very, very smartly. I worked closely with Cuomo, worked closely with Murphy in New Jersey, who was phenomenal. And we made sure that everyone in the country who needed a ventilator got a ventilator. And at the same time, we used the Defense Production Act and we, we stimulated supply. And, and so by the time we were done, we had so many ventilators that we were sending them to other countries to help save lives there. But with regards to the CDC and, and uh, the NIH, you know, originally, uh, I was very impressed, and the team was saying they were very impressed with the talent and expertise that was there. And why not? I mean, we didn't know anything about infectious diseases, so we were initially impressed. But as it started spreading in America, we realized that the CDC just had zero operational capability. Uh, it was run by bureaucrats. They have about, I think it was 11,000 people. I could probably run that thing with maybe like 100 was probably all they need. You could do a lot of you know fat cutting there. And we just found that we had to kind of bring in business people and private sector people in the military to figure out how to operationally deal with all the different logistics like scaling testing um, and, and distributing the vaccine and, and getting things manufactured uh, because they, they, these, these, these bureaucrats mostly didn't have. Now, there were a ton of tremendous people that we found in the bureaucracy who stepped up and helped and did an incredible job. And, you know, these people were working during the time, you know, with fear of, you know, catching the virus. And, and, and it really was uh, you know, combat time and a lot of people stepped up, but uh, the leadership really was not prepared for, you know, the sole function that they're really designed to be prepared for. And we had to navigate through that. And I give President Trump a ton of credit because at the time, there's a scene I write about in the book with Dr. Fauci, where he's basically screaming at him saying, look, you know, you're telling me to shut down the economy. Kids are not going to school. That's going to mess them up. People are, are committing suicide. They're, they're getting hooked on drugs and alcohol. They're losing their jobs. And I'm not going to I'm not going to preside over the death of the greatest economy that, 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 that that's ever existed in history. And so Dr. Fauci then backs off and says, look, you know, I'm just I just give medical advice. And you're the one who has to consider all of these things at large. And, you know, they just had different approaches in terms of how they took it. Um, but ultimately, President Trump was able to calibrate it and figure out how to save as many lives as possible, but also keep our economy and country strong. Uh, and those, that was not easy. And those were some very, very dark days. The media was weaponizing the virus to attack President Trump. And again, I write, you know, I've got five chapters on this in the book, but it moves pretty quickly about all the things we did to constantly be innovating and evolving uh, to rise to what was a, a very historic challenge. And again, if you would have had, you know, the bureaucrats in charge instead of an outsider and a businessman like President Trump, I think the results would have been, you know, catastrophically worse. There was just a study in The Lancet that came out that basically said that because of the speed of getting the vaccine done, which was historic, 20 million people around the world uh, have been saved, you know, people who would have died otherwise uh, because of the effectiveness of Operation Warp Speed. And that really is, is only a tribute to President Trump and him, you know, empowering the right people and, and breaking through the bureaucracy and, and, and saying, I want this result and I don't care who says it can't be done. Everyone laughed when he said we were going to get it done in, in, in 10 months. And, uh, and he made that miracle happen. And, and thank God that he did. 
It's an extremely impressive book. It flows beautifully. It's easy to read. It is. There are things that they come across, you know, the human side of the president, which they always try to dehumanize him. Uh, you had a not just a bird's eye view, but a hands-on role. Very, very important. And I want to encourage all of you out there, not just people who love Donald Trump, although I, I do count you in this, but people who are just fascinated by history. This is the book you want. Breaking History, Jared Kushner. It's a White House memoir. I could listen to this for hours. And Jared, I want to thank you very, very much. Ladies and gentlemen, you can go to Amazon.com right now, any major bookstore tomorrow. You want to get a copy of this. It is a, a terrific book to read. Jared, thanks so much, my friend. Mark, thank you. It's an honor to be with you, and thanks for all you do and all you fight for. Well, God bless you. Best of the family. Just terrific, this book, I have to say. I'll be right back. Mark Lovin. Third hour on this program is often the most important. And that was a very important third hour, don't you think? Thoroughly enjoyed that, enjoyed that interview, didn't you, Mr. Producer? Mr. Call Screener, I thought it was remarkable. And the book is every bit as remarkable. Breaking history on Amazon.com. You know, I look at these Florida results, very interesting. And you know what's interesting, Mr. Producer, in America, we have the Republican results coming in and the Democrat results coming in, and I don't really give a damn what the Democrat results are in the Democrat primaries, do you? Why do I care? And this audience doesn't care. We will take on whomever we have to take on. Folks in Pennsylvania, the election is tightening up. Despite the propagandists and the media, the frauds, the phonies, and the fools, despite the Democrats and some of these so-called populists and nationalists, Dr. Oz is in the battle. He's only a couple points behind, even though the media are out to kill him. We now have J.D. Vance a couple points ahead. Herschel Walker's in the fight, too. That's what I say. Don't give up. Unite. Unite. We need to send shockwaves. Shockwaves. We salute our armed forces, police officers, firefighters, emergency personnel, our truckers, the men and women in Ukraine and Taiwan. God bless you all. And you folks in this audience, you're the best of the best, the smartest of the smartest. 